We're on page nine in the booklets, if you want to see an outline. Well, I think everyone seems to agree. There are newspaper articles on the subject, many TED Talks that address it, research from prestigious universities support the conclusion that most people seem to lack motivation in life. Polls suggest that about 90% of Australians would like to be fitter physically, yet a lot less than 90% pound the pathways and go to the gym, including myself. Motivation is a difficult thing because how do we get it? You know what it's like, don't you? It's hard to generate motivation to study, to exercise, to read your Bible, even to get out of bed in the morning. Our government would love the key to motivating people to be fit and healthy. They'd love people to be concerned about climate change, at least one side of politics. But the only motive they seem to be able to give us is money which is really an admission of failure. By and large, we're an apathetic bunch, aren't we? We're not passionate about much at all. We don't take initiative. We're just sort of blobs to be manipulated by governments or friends or parents. And I feel it myself. I remember when I went back to study, having been working for a couple of years, I just couldn't sit at a desk and study. I'd sit down and get the books out and 10 minutes later, I'd find myself walking around the room looking for something else to do. And so I worked out a method to motivate myself. I bought a jar of lollies, I put them on the shelf, and I said, Tim, if you can do half an hour of study, you get a lolly. And it sort of worked. I did some study. I managed to increase my study capacity by lollies, by artificial motivations. When I got married and Rosemary saw what I did, she said, that just doesn't work. I just eat all the lollies before I study. (laughs) But as a Christian... Often we just do what we have to do. And if we get uneasy with our apathy, well, we can always turn on Netflix, can't we? And distract ourselves. Now, there are different ways of motivating. Many people try to find things that inspire them. You can go online and watch TED Talks. And when I quickly searched it, more than 1,200 TED Talks are inspiring. They're inspirational. They'll give you motivation. At least that's a promise. There are speakers who do the networks, Olympic heroes and others with great rescue stories, and they come and tell you about their rescues and about their heroic efforts to try and inspire you. Some of us use music. Turn on some music that's got a real bop to it and you start to find yourself bopping and getting energetic and maybe it motivates you. Or we read biographies of famous people and inspiring people. But what I need, and what you need, I think, is motivation that doesn't find it like that. So if you've got to find motivation outside yourself like that, to do anything, to live properly, it's sort of contrived, it's artificial, isn't it? It's not really authentic. It's like my lollies. Well, this morning we're looking at a story, and a story within a story. They're not particularly motivational, but they give us great insight into motivation. In fact, it gives us insight in spades, I think. Now, the main story is about a dinner party. Jesus is invited as the guest of honour to the house of Simon the Pharisee. Jesus, up to this point in Luke's Gospel, has been launched into the public eye by John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, look at him, 
He's the guy I've been talking about. And Jesus has been moving around Galilee doing stuff that really blew people's minds. He's teaching, he's healing, casting out evil spirits, he's making waves, but he's controversial. Some people love him. They hang about with him partly because he hangs about with them. In the passage before this, Jesus is accused in verse 34 of eating and drinking, of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What a great reputation to have a drunkard, a glutton, hanging out with the wrong crowd. And some of those wrong crowd love him, but for most people, they're standoffish, they're uncommitted. They see Jesus and they say, let's wait and see what he really turns out like. Let's check him out. And Simon fits into that category. He invites Jesus to dinner. And dinner, think lunch, and try and have in your mind not the way you would normally have a dinner party, but something more like this. The dinner parties in those days, they didn't have seats at tables. They had a low table in the middle and everyone would recline at table. You would sit there, propped up on one elbow, one hand free to reach the food, plock it into your mouth or the mouth of the person next to you, whatever took your fancy, and your feet are out towards the back. And you need to have this in your mind as we follow this story because it, it doesn't make sense without it. And a local woman gate crashes the dinner party right in the middle. She wants to anoint Jesus with precious perfumed ointment. We're told it's in an alabaster flask. It's, it would have been a family heirloom, something kept for that very special occasion, you know, a bit like a bottle of Hermitage Grange. You don't know what Hermitage Grange is? Blessings on you. <laughs> that you, you, keep, you. You don't want to use it until you get just the right occasion which of course never happens. And so it just sits in the, in the cupboard and gets passed from one generation to another. Well, this is that sort of flask of perfumed oil. And she's come to anoint. This is an occasion that she thinks is worth using it. And she's very motivated. She ignores many of the social taboos of the time. I mean, she's uninvited. She just gate crashes. She walks in and we're told that she's a sinner. Now, a sinner in this sort of context is a euphemism maybe for a prostitute at least someone who's a slut. She, she sleeps around. Everybody knows it. That's the sort of woman she is. And those who are righteous, of course, keep their distance. And here she is in the house of a Pharisee. But it gets worse. She stands at the feet of Jesus, because that's the only part that's accessible. And she starts sobbing uncontrollably. And tears flow down her cheeks and they drop off her chin onto Jesus' feet. Literally, it says, she's drenching his feet with her tears. Can you imagine how many tears that would take? And then she hasn't bought a towel, so what does she do? Well, in her embarrassment or, or something, she, she thinks the only thing I've got to dry his feet is my hair, her long flowing hair. So she kneels down at Jesus' feet and starts to dry his feet with her hair. And as she does it, she can't help herself. She starts kissing his feet. And then she breaks the top off the alabaster jar and, and anoints Jesus' feet and the perfume goes everywhere. Now, if you'd been a guest at that dinner party, you would have stopped eating. (laughs) This is a scene. She's creating an incredible scene, a very embarrassing scene by what she's doing. It's awkward for everybody, this gushy emotionalism. It's embarrassing for her, it's embarrassing for Jesus, and nobody knows quite where to look because we all don't like this sort of thing happening. And it's very ambiguous, isn't it? It's very intimate, kissing Jesus' feet, wiping them them dry, anointing them. And given who she is, 
it sort of looks seductive. It, it, it has that ambiguity to it. And it causes a backlash in the mind of Simon. Well, Simon says in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Now, Simon thinks, Jesus mustn't know. I mean, if he was a prophet, if he really was a man of God, then he'd know, he'd have that knowledge that she's a sinner, she's a, she's a slut. He, he wouldn't let it happen. So he can't be a prophet. But before Simon can voice his thoughts, Jesus answers his thoughts. He is a prophet. He knows what he's thinking. But he answers in a very different way to how Simon expects him to respond to that information. He tells Simon a story, what we call a parable. Parables aren't stories to inspire. They're more like weapons Jesus uses to provoke. Now, this story is pretty simple and uncomplicated. Pick it up in verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. 500 denarii is about $50,000. Okay, you haven't got that in your pocket, have you? Nor your bank account? It's a sizable amount. The other 50 denarii is about $5,000. Now, you probably haven't got that in your pocket either, but it's not as much as 50,000, is it? Neither of them, verse 42, had the money to pay him back. Now, if you couldn't pay back your debts in that culture like ours, you're in trouble. So not being able to pay back the debt means that they would need to sell everything they have. If they couldn't pay back their debt by selling everything, and that's what this is indicating, then probably they'd need to sell themselves into slavery to cover the debt. That's what both these people are facing in the story. But the money lender, we're told in verse 42, forgave the debts of both. Just wiped them. Said, you don't owe me anything. All is forgiven. That's a very simple story, isn't it? Unusual. Money lenders don't normally do that. I wouldn't recommend that you borrow, borrow money from your bank expecting they'll treat you like this. But it sort of seems out of place, doesn't it? What's the relevance of a story about money lenders and being forgiven your debt? Like is Jesus saying, Simon, I, I borrowed some money from you and I can't pay it back. I'm trying to sort of wheedle my way out of it. Is, is that what's going on? And then Jesus drops a question into Simon's lap that starts to help us see what the story's about. His question is, which of them will love him more? <coughs> he asked Simon to make the call. Now, Simon, I take it at this point, is still unclear what the relevance is, but he, sense a bit, he senses a trap. But the answer's just so obvious, you can't get it wrong, can you? You'd love this question in your exam. The answer is dead easy. And he says, well, I suppose the one who's been forgiven more. Which is right, isn't it? You have a bigger debt forgiven, it'll have a bigger effect on you. If I owe you $5 and you say to me, Tim, forget it, I probably will. If I owe you $500 and you say, forget it, I probably won't forget it. And I'll rem uh, it'll have a big effect on me. I'll be very relieved. Simon's right. And he's also right that it's a trap. And Jesus starts to explain the point of his story in verse 44. And Luke draws our attention to the dynamic of the situation. He turned towards the woman and speaks to Simon. Can you see what that's doing? This woman that Simon has just treated as the woman, the sinner, the slut, the loose woman, 
Jesus makes him look at her. And Jesus speaks to her, sorry, looks at her while he's speaking to Simon. He says, Simon, I came to your place and you didn't give me any water for my feet. I came to your place and you didn't give me a kiss. I came to your place and you didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't even do the things that often basic courtesy would lead you to do for a guest. You didn't even do those. You just treated me as somebody to be examined, somebody to be looked at, somebody to be a spectacle. But this woman, she's been different, hasn't she? She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet and she's poured perfume onto my feet. And then having drawn out that difference, that huge gulf between Simon and the anonymous woman, he did nothing really, nothing beyond what was absolutely necessary. She went over the top. She treated him way beyond politeness and duty. And then he connects the two stories, the story of Simon and the dinner party, the story of the, 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 uh, the money lender in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. See, there's the point of the little story of the parable. It explains the woman's actions. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. It's not that uh, she's been forgiven because she loved. It's the other way, isn't it? In, in, in the little story he tells, it's not that they love the moneylender. No, they, the person who's forgiven the most loves the most. It's a response to being forgiven. And it helps us understand what Jesus means by love. So what is love in this situation? Well, it's clearly something like gratitude, isn't it? That thankful appreciation for what she has received. The person forgiven much loves much and she loves much. It loves over the top because she's conscious that she's been forgiven heaps. But those whose love is small and shriveled is evidence that they've been forgiven little or maybe even nothing. What motivated, what drove her actions was love but not a romantic sort of love. Often guys get a bit uncomfortable when we talk about loving God or loving Jesus because it feels like Jesus is my girlfriend. There is affection in this, but it's not that romantic sort of love. It's not just attraction either. Jesus is a cool guy. I'd love to hang out with him. This is gratitude love. Her tears that drench Jesus' feet are not tears of sorrow and loss or even remorse. They're tears of joy of being forgiven, of relief, of wonder. Have you had those sort of tears? They're great. They're the best tears in the world. She has experienced the grace of God. She's acutely aware of her own sin, her filth. She needs no one to catalogue them, to remind her of them. She's painfully aware of her helplessness. Her debt to God is unpayable. All the religious duty, all the moral righteousness, all the turning over new leaves can never undo what she's been and what she's done. She can't buy God off. But she's even more aware of being forgiven, of experiencing that weight being lifted off her shoulders, off her conscience, off her heart, the shame and the guilt being washed away. And the natural, the uncontrived reaction is this loving gratitude that bursts her heart. Even if she makes a public spectacle of herself, she doesn't care. She's motivated 
to do this act of devotion. And somehow she connects it all with Jesus. It's a bit hard to work out how. Luke doesn't give us the backstory to this woman. We don't even know her name. But it's not hard to imagine, is it? Back in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, women like this. And when he's challenged about it, he says, well, it's not the righteous, it's not the, the, the well who need a doctor, it's the sick, isn't it? I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And she's one of them. Presumably she's been there at a previous time when Jesus has welcomed such people. She's shunned by Pharisees like Simon, but Jesus has welcomed them again and again and again. And his words speak louder. Oh, sorry, his actions speak louder than words. She was one of those. Now, this is no random act of kindness. She came to the dinner party because she heard Jesus was there at Simon's place. Now, at this point, she knows nothing about Jesus' imminent death. When Jesus himself would sacrifice his life to pay her debt, to bear her sin in his body as the nails were driven into the feet that she anointed. She just knows that forgiveness is what Jesus has brought to her, that she's been forgiven. She's been welcomed by Jesus. And that's happening again in the dinner party, isn't it? Everybody else is embarrassed. Everybody else is criticising her. Everybody else wants her out of the dinner party. But Jesus welcomes her. And even what she's doing to him, it should embarrass him, but he's not embarrassed. Again, she's experienced that welcome and that forgiveness. And in verse 48, Jesus confirms it. He says to her, your sins have been forgiven. He assures her that what she feels intuitively is actually true. Her sins have been wiped away. But the other guests then ask a very good question. Verse 49, they say, who is this who even forgives sins? It's a good question. The parable itself sort of raises that, doesn't it? There's a money lender who's owed by two people. Who's the money lender? Well, when it comes down to sin and forgiveness, it must be God himself, mustn't it? But this woman isn't coming and loving God in some abstract way. She's loving Jesus. It's Jesus who's forgiven her. That's who she's experienced this welcome from, which she knows and, and, and feels is forgiveness from God. It is a good question. How is it that that can be about Jesus? But you can ask that question in order to avoid the real question. Because the real question Jesus' story raises for us is the question that Simon might be asking at this point. Why do I love so little? Why is my love so shriveled and small? Is it because I think I haven't been forgiven much? Is it because I think I don't need forgiveness? See, what this woman has experienced is what Paul in Romans calls the reign of grace. In Romans chapter 5, this is part of our small group material. You'll get to it. If uh, you, you've read it already, you'll spend some more time on Thursday looking at it. What Paul says here is ever since the time of Adam, some, from the beginning of human history, sin has reigned over all humans in death. We all sin. We, we know that. And therefore we all die, all are condemned. Some people think that the solution might be law. Tell people what they should do, what's right and wrong. A bit more law and order, that's what will fix sin. 
That's really what Simon's like. He shuns sinners to try and force them to mend their ways. Do better, try harder, get onto that treadmill of doing more and more, trying to keep the law. But Paul says what law actually does, it doesn't solve sin, it doesn't overcome sin, it just increases sin. It prods sin into life. It exposes our sinfulness. See, when you sin, what does law do to you? Does it help you? No, it just condemns you, doesn't it? I do something wrong, I steal somebody, I I slander somebody and the law says, don't do it. Does it help me not do it? No, it just condemns me for doing it. Law abets sin in its rule over our life. But God's response is not giving law, it's grace. Grace is the opposite of sin. It it actually does work to, to break the power of sin. Because what happens under grace when you sin? Hey, when you sin, you expect to feel guilty and ashamed and disqualified. And that's certainly what law does. You expect sin to destroy you. But instead, under grace, when you sin, you experience forgiveness. You experience welcome. And therefore, love. See, this woman, in one sense, her greatest sin has been her ally. Because when you're under grace, the more you sin, the more grace you experience. And therefore, the greater love you have for the one who's forgiven you. It's a wonderful dynamic. It's sort of like beanbags. Do anybody know what a beanbag is? Some of you will. I grew up with them. They're terrific things. Beanbags are these big sacks full of little polystyrene beads. And the great thing about beanbags is it doesn't matter what you do to it, they just absorb it. You can run and jump on them and they're fine. Do that to a chair, it collapses under you. Beanbag, fine. You can punch it as hard as you like and it just absorbs it. Well, grace is like that with sin. You sin, does it destroy things? Under grace, no. (laughs) Grace just absorbs it. That's what Jesus' death achieves for us. Sin can't win against grace unless grace runs out. And if there's only 100 litres of grace, then maybe it'll all get used up, but God's grace is inexhaustible. And grace produces love. He who is forgiven much loves much. Which takes us back to the question of motivation. Motivation to live, motivation to move us out of apathy. This woman has got that motivation, hasn't she? Nobody told her to go to that dinner party. She, she went herself. Nobody forced her to, to bawl her eyes out and, and anoint Jesus' feet. He, she wanted to do it. Where do you get this sort of motivation from? Well, according to Jesus' story, you get it from a certain form of self-consciousness. Now, not all forms of self-consciousness are helpful. Some forms just drive you into fear. See, there's a self-consciousness that fills you with anxiety. You know that feeling when you know that others are watching you and you suddenly start to think, oh, I wonder what clothes I've got on today. Are they okay? Did I do my hair this morning? Is is my makeup right? I wonder what people are thinking of me. And we just sort of tighten up and our movements get a bit stilted and our voice goes a bit funny and we then get embarrassed because they're watching us and then we're embarrassed for being embarrassed and the whole thing snowballs into horrific, terrible life. There's... That's a form of self-consciousness that we often feel, but the form of self-consciousness this woman knows is quite different. She doesn't care what people think of her. 
She's got over that. She's motivated very differently. She's self-conscious of her own sin, of her own moral failure, of the way in which she has lived that is offensive to God, destructive of the marriages of other people and their lives as well as her own. It's self-consciously aware of being in debt, having a huge, overbearing, unable to pay back debt that leads to desperation and depression. But even more conscious, more conscious of being forgiven, of that weight being lifted, of the joy of being welcomed by Jesus, of feeling clean and loved. And it's that self-consciousness that feeds her heart that overflows in gratitude, (laughs) even sometimes in gushing emotion and tears and extravagant acts of devotion. But my guess is most days it wasn't like that. It's the same consciousness that motivates her, gives her the energy to wash up the dishes at home and chat to her neighbours across the back fence. What motivates her is love for Jesus. The one forgiven much loves much. She loves Jesus and everything flows from that. That's what drives her. That's what gives her motivation. Can you see what it means to be a Christian? It's a wonderful little story and a story within a story because it explains Christianity. It's so different to everything else in life. It's love motivated by a consciousness of being forgiven. Forgiven heaps and therefore loving heaps. Not not told, just go and love, come on, you can do it. But it just coming naturally out of that self-consciousness of being forgiven so much. And I think that's very different to our prevailing culture. Our prevailing culture says to us, your goal in life, what will motivate you, you in life is the me project. Getting your life together, being the sort of person that you dream of being, that's what will motivate you, that, that's what will create your life. Interestingly, it's also true, not just of our culture, but most of our Christian culture. Uh, there was a, a remarkable bit of research done uh, about 10 years ago now about uh, of Christian young adults in Western culture. And it asked them a whole lot of questions about what they believed and why they believed it. And the conclusion of the researchers was what they called, if I can get this up, moralistic therapeutic deism. Their conclusion was that most people who call themselves Christians, young adults in Western society, this is actually what their religion is like. It's moralistic. God wants us to be good and nice people, like all religions want us to be. It's therapeutic. The the, the central goal is to make me happy, to feel good about myself, as if God is my therapist. And deism, God's not involved in my life normally. He's, He's sort of distant, just watching. But when I have an issue, I can call on him. He's sort of like my genie. You know, I, I rub the, the, uh, the, the lamp three times, God comes, fixes my problem, and then he can go back to sleep again. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's not Christianity. That's not what this woman has experienced, is it? She's not into the me project. She's just experienced the extravagant grace of God, and that has changed her life. It's given her a whole different reason to live that isn't about herself. It's a love for Jesus that fuels everything that she does. Jesus has made her her feel very different about herself, 
forgiven. That's what she feels. The person forgiven much loves much. It's a very simple statement, isn't it? It's a very profound statement. It's profoundly true. The person forgiven much does love much, don't they? We've seen it in this woman. I hope you've seen it in others and maybe, I hope, and pray in yourself. And it's got big implications, profound implications for how we live. It saves us from all sorts of dead ends, motivating ourselves by guilt and inadequacy. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I've got to try harder. Maybe that'll get me to do something. It'll save us from the addiction to motivational music and speakers, TED Talks and endless inspirational stories. See, this woman, she didn't go to a TED Talk that morning. She didn't go to some Olympic champion telling the story of their life to motivate her to go and do this act. No, she didn't get hyped up like that. It it came from inside. It came from that self-consciousness of being forgiven. The dynamic of a Christian life is not mere duty and responsibility imposed from outside to make you do what you don't want to do. That's Simon. That's Simon to a T, but it's not this woman. The dynamic of her life is love. Grateful thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude and affection. The person forgiven much loves much. The person forgiven little loves little. How do you build that into your life? Because my guess is many of us are sitting there saying, yeah, I I know that's true, but it's not how I feel. It's not actually the dynamic of my life. Well, let me make two suggestions, both of which come out of the Bible. How do you become conscious of being forgiven much? Well, one is to recognise what I've been forgiven, how much I've been forgiven. Uh, One of my friends has suggested that most young people today are all too aware of their failures. And some of us are. But I suspect many of us aren't, actually. Part of our culture is to think, well, I'm not as bad as the next person. I'm okay. I'm really quite a nice, moral person. My friends like me. I like me. What's wrong with you that you don't? And so often we'll justify ourselves if anybody ever accuses us of anything. Do you know what the Bible does? It keeps doing this funny thing. It keeps saying, this is what we were. We were lost. We were dead. We were following the passions of our own sinful nature. We were, by nature, children of wrath. We were unkind, jealous, hating and being hated. And what does it do that? To drive us to despair? No. To remind us of how much we've been forgiven. That there but for the grace of God... Go I. And sometimes it is helpful to just stop and think, what have I been forgiven? Just today. What have I been forgiven for last week? What have I been forgiven as I look back further in my life? But the second way to do it is to think and meditate on how much my forgiveness cost. Jesus gave his life. But it's not just giving a life. Lots of people give lives. The night before Jesus was crucified, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed a prayer that gives an insight into what it was going to cost him. Jesus, the most courageous person I've ever come across, is is desperate. He's overcome, petrified with what he's facing. And he describes it as drinking the cup 
But what he means by that is experiencing the wrath of his father against the evil of the world. That's what Jesus experienced. It wasn't just death. It wasn't just crucifixion. It was hell. He faced it. He shuddered. And he went through with it for you and me. The cost of my forgiveness is extraordinary. I, I, I will never plumb the depths of it. I get some insights. I get some, uh, a, a, a bit of a picture from something like the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and as I realise what it cost Jesus, what he went through for me, so that the sense of being forgiven much comes alive. It becomes real. It becomes significant. Have you done that? Have you meditated on the cost of your forgiveness? Because those who are forgiven little love little. But those who are forgiven much love much. Amen.